starting at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to disobedient and contrary people. Thank you. Yeah, let's pray. Thank you, Selah. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Uh, Lord, we ask that you teach us this morning as you taught your first disciples. I pray that we would come to understand your word as your Holy Spirit guides us, that we would understand it for ourselves and that we would know how to live by it for your glory. So we ask for this grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So the title of this message is Running from the Finish Line. Don't we normally run to the finish line? I hope that as we go through the message over the next half hour, you'll come to an understanding of what this strange title means. In 2012, the Jamaican uh, men's 4x100 relay team, they ran what many consider to be the most beautiful relays in all of history. Let's take a look. I feel like running every time I watch that video. You know, the four runners, uh, Michael Frater, Nesta Carter, Johan Blake, and Usain Bolt, they ran their legs of the race at full speed. The, the baton passes were flawless, and they just smashed the world record. Uh, it read up there 36.85. It was actually 36.84, the official time. New world record, and it's never been broken. Incredible race. Today, in the passage that, we're going, that we read, Paul calls people to run a beautiful race. What is the beautiful race that we are to run? What does that look like? What's the beautiful race of the gospel of Jesus? Let's go to Romans chapter 10, verse 15. 
the latter part of that verse. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul's quoting, actually, from Isaiah 52. The verse, it pictures uh, a runner crossing hills. It's like uh, the well-known story of the Greek runner who ran from the battles of Marathon all the way to Athens. And upon his arrival in Athens, he gasped, victory, and then fell dead. He was announcing the Greek victory over the Persians in 490 B.C. Ran for 26 miles, much of the way uphill, 42 kilometers. And in his honor, we continue to run the marathon race around the world to this day. Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 52. In Isaiah chapter 52, again, there's a runner, there's a messenger who runs to Israel with good news. Jerusalem's enemy, Babylon, has fallen. Israel has been in exile. The message is, hey, good news of peace, of happiness, of salvation. Our God reigns. We have been set free. Good news. In Romans chapter 10, as Paul quotes Isaiah 52, he says that, you know, the messenger has beautiful feet. I don't often think of my feet as being beautiful. Maybe you think of your feet in that way, but my feet are often smelly. They get dirty. Why would the feet of those carrying a message be beautiful? Well, Paul is referring to people who have in their hearts the beautiful good news of Jesus. And so the feet are beautiful. We read, preach the good news. Those words in the original are actually one word, evangelize. When we read, preach the good news, uh, proclaim the good news, we often think of somebody on a platform like me here today preaching a message and everyone is listening intently as you are today, right? This is not what Paul had in mind. He did not have in mind a preacher on a Sunday morning. What Paul had in mind was a multitude of runners crossing hills, running down roads, carrying the good news of Jesus, everyone, every day, everywhere. Why are the beautiful feet running? Well, they've come to know Jesus personally. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, how do people come to call on the name of Jesus? Well, the answer to that question is actually found in verses 14 and 15. Paul answers the question through a series of rhetorical questions, and he actually uh, moves backwards. It's like four legs of a relay race. He works backwards to emphasize the sending. Let's uh, look at the, the four legs of the relay race. So people only call on Jesus if they actually believe in Him. People will not trust in Jesus if they have never heard Him. People will not hear Jesus if no one proclaims the good news. People will not proclaim the good news if they're not sent. So Paul structures it in that way in order to 
emphasize the sending, that it's urgent. Now, the race actually happens in reverse order. So, let's go to the actual uh, order of the beautiful race. People are sent with the good news. The good news is shared. The gospel is shared. People hear Jesus. People hear Jesus. They put their trust in Him. People trust in Jesus, and they are saved. That's the sequence of sharing the good news of Jesus. Another point, you may have noticed that I said, hear Jesus, rather than hear of Jesus. I think the New American Standard Bible translates verse 14 correctly. It should read, how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard, rather than of whom they have never heard? As the gospel is proclaimed by Jesus' followers, people hear Jesus speaking to them personally. Maybe that was your experience when you heard the good news of Jesus being proclaimed to you the first time. It felt like Jesus himself was speaking to you. Jesus speaks through those who share his message. Now, Paul believes there's an urgency around all of this an urgency around the sending, an urgency around the sharing of the good news. Do we resonate with that? Some of you may have heard of William Carey. William Carey was a British man. He is considered by many to be the founder of the the modern missionary movement. And when he shared with his church board his desire to go to India, this is what they said to him. Young man... When God chooses to save the heathen, He will do so without your help. (laughs) Now, thankfully, William Carey thought differently, and the rest is history. But I've heard people make this statement in relation to the sharing of the good news today. Sometimes people will say this, well, God doesn't need us. Well, there is some truth to that. There's some truth to it. But saying that can encourage a complacency around sharing the good news that actually contradicts the words of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and disciple all nations. Or we could go to John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus never said in relation to evangelism when he was talking to his disciples, hey disciples, relax, I don't need you. Have you ever read those words in the scriptures? No, he says to his disciples, Go, I'm sending you. Go to all peoples with the good news of the gospel. Now, a question may come up in your mind. How do we reconcile chapter 9, where Paul emphasizes God's sovereign choosing, his elective purposes, chapter 9, and chapter 10, which talks about the responsibility that we have in sharing the good news and the responsibility that people have to respond. How do we put those two together? I like what British theologian J.I. Packer says, so far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism 
from being pointless. Because God is sovereignly at work in the lives that we are speaking to, and sovereignly at work in our lives, sovereignly working through us, because that is a reality, we share the good news with faith that God's going to do something, with joy, with boldness. So if you're a follower of Jesus, know that you are sent under the authority of Jesus and with the empowerment of His Holy Spirit. Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission, lo, I am with you always, to the end of the age. And know that if this is your church home, your church family, that you are sent by Jesus and sent by this church to be Jesus' witnesses in Metro Vancouver and beyond. We are God's chosen method to share the good news of the gospel. When we share the good news, people hear Jesus speaking to them. That's why our mission statement uh, reads, to know Jesus Christ personally and to carry on His ministry. That's why our, our vision statement is a family on mission with Jesus, everyone, every day, everywhere. If we know Jesus personally, we know we have a story to share. Everyone that follows Jesus has a story to share, the story of the gospel and a personal story of how God has been at work in our lives. As we follow Jesus, we become more and more attuned to the mission that He has entrusted to us. If you don't feel equipped, I would say this, get equipped. There's a wonderful discovery class, Discovering How to Share Your Faith. If you take this class you'll learn the essentials of the gospel story. You'll learn how to share your own story with others. I'm so thankful for the many at Willingdon who run this beautiful race. People who share the good news of Jesus in discovery classes here at Willingdon and ESL classes, uh, life group leaders and life group members who invite the seeking into their relationship, their community. I'm thankful for those who witness to Jesus on the sky train, on the bus, at school, in the workplace. Many at Willingdon are sharing the good news of Jesus day after day, and I celebrate that. They run from the finish line. What does that mean? Well, before we answer this question, what does it mean to run from the finish line, let's talk about something else that's really important. Some people run the race of life and never get to the finish line. So that's sobering. What does it mean to run and yet never reach the finish line? Why do some run the race of life and never discover what it means to run the beautiful race? You see, Romans chapter 10, it's set in the context of Jews not believing in Jesus. And one of the questions that comes up in Romans chapter 10 is, why the hardness of heart? Why did they not welcome Jesus? Did they have an opportunity to hear the good news? Did they even have that opportunity? This is the objection of Romans 10, 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Paul answers by quoting from Psalm 19, verse 4. Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, if you go back to Psalm 19, you'll see that this psalm actually celebrates the way that all of creation gives glory to God. 
all of creation just vibrates with the sounds of heaven. It's kind of like Romans chapter 1 where Paul says that uh, God's invisible attributes are evident to all who look at creation. So is Paul saying that general revelation, what's evident to all in creation, that that's enough for people to come to a saving faith in Jesus? What's he doing? Well, it's kind of like this. My younger brother is a much better basketball player than I am. He played for UBC. He's taller than I am. He's bigger than I am. He's faster than I am. If today on Mother's Day, I said to my brother, Reg, I'm going to destroy you at one-on-one today. He would probably say, make my day. (laughs) Why? Because I have never beat him at one-on-one in my whole life. Now, when he says, make my day, where's he getting that language? What's he drawing on? Clint Eastwood movie, right? So, in the movie Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood is a police officer. And as he stares down a criminal, as only Clint Eastwood can, as he stares him down, the criminal is threatening to pull his gun, and Clint Eastwood looks at him and says, make my day. Try it and you'll be toast. (laughs) Now, when my brother says to me, Ray, make my day, is he threatening to shoot me? I hope not. (laughs) No, he's saying, if you challenge me to one-on-one, I will shoot the basketball through the hoop many more times than you, and this is going to be a great Mother's Day. Make my day. So Paul, he's drawing on Psalm 19, the language in that psalm to say, the word of the gospel, it's actually gone out throughout the earth. Where there are Jewish communities in the Roman Empire and beyond, the gospel has been shared by me and by others who follow Jesus. You've had an opportunity to hear the good news. Well, another objection comes up. They've heard the good news. But did they understand? Verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Maybe Israel heard the gospel, but they just couldn't get their heads around it. And in response, Paul, in typical Jewish fashion, he goes to the law of the Old Testament. He goes to the prophets. First, the law. He goes to Deuteronomy chapter 32, actually. We read this um, in verse 19. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. This quotation is actually from the Song of Moses, which is a prophetic word. And so this prophetic word says that God will make Israel jealous with people, a people that does not have an understanding, a senseless people. He's referring to the non-Jews, people like us. The prophetic word says that God is going to make Israel angry because Gentiles, non-Jews like many of us, will come to understand it, even though the Jews don't. And Paul's point is, if the non-Jews were able to understand the gospel, then the Jews could have understood it as well. 
They could have understood. Then Paul goes to the prophets. So if Moses said this rather obscurely, Isaiah says it really clearly, plainly. In verse 20, he quotes from Isaiah 65, verse 1. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. God is found by people who are not even asking for him, not even looking for him. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1, we hear God saying this, Here I am! Here I am! He puts himself in the place of a servant. God is humble, shows himself to people that aren't even looking for him. And the Gentiles, the non-Jews, Paul said, they received salvation even though they weren't looking for God. Grace. Grace. Israel, on the other hand, point blank refused to accept their Messiah, as Paul writes in Romans 10, 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. They heard the good news, but hearing is not enough. If you look at that word obedience in both Greek and Latin, at, at the core of the word is hearing and then submitting to what you have heard. So the Jews, they heard the good news of Jesus. While Jesus was walking around, uh, you know, um, Judea and Galilee, they heard Jesus speaking to them. They heard Jesus, but they refused to accept Jesus as their Messiah. They refused to uh, submit to their crucified Messiah. They refused to let Jesus be God. They rejected him. They didn't believe that they needed Jesus' righteousness. Instead, they pursued their own righteousness. They ran down down the wrong path hard. So, of course, the question comes up, are we running down the wrong path? Last September, our staff team went to Bowen Island. We went there to do some team building, and one of the afternoon activities was e-biking. So some of us guys, we got so excited about e-biking that we started riding feverishly towards some destination without looking at a map. Some of the guys were foolish enough to follow me. And so we're riding hard down this path, which then becomes a trail. And in a little while, we find ourselves riding over routes and then we're trying to get around boulders, there's this trail cut out on the side of a hill, and it's made for hikers, not e-bikers. So we're working really hard. At one point, I stumble, I slip, I cut my arm. Going down the wrong path. Working really hard. But we wouldn't, we're never going to get to our destination. Finally, I repented for what I had done, apologized to my, you know, fellow e-bikers who were following me. They agreed to never follow me again. <laughs> and we found a map and eventually reached our destination. Are we on the right path? Are we on the wrong path? 
This is the imagery that's behind Romans 9, verses 30 to 32. Pastor Mark referred to these verses last week. Let's read them. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. So Pastor Mark told his tripping story. Maybe you remembered a tripping story in your own life, but what was happening was that the Jews were so intent of working for their own righteousness, measuring up, meriting salvation, that they tripped over their very own Messiah, Jesus. They stumbled. They stumbled over the one that the whole Old Testament pointed to. In Romans chapter 10, verse 4, we read this. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. So the Scriptures were given to run Israel right to Jesus. Jesus always was the end of the law, the goal of the race. He always was the finish line. My mother was a a very, very active woman. And uh, one of the things that she did was canvass for different nonprofit organizations. One organization that she canvassed for was Mother's March. Uh, Mother's March was an attempt to raise funds for polio research. There was a desire in the 50s and 60s to eradicate polio. So one day she had been out canvassing and she was carrying her precious Mother's March materials and she was running to our house. It was cold. And as she was running, she tripped, fell, face planted. She cut her nose, bruised her face badly. Now, my mother um, had four sons, and we boys thought that was very funny. I know, we were cruel. But we played sports all the time, and we said to my mother, Mom, how can you run and trip and not put your arms down to brace yourself when you fall? How is it even possible to fall like this? And we would act it out and laugh and... Eventually, my mother laughed as well. Bless her. She raised four boys. I miss her. But that's the way that Israel was running. Israel was holding on to the law so tightly that when Jesus came, Israel tripped and face-planted and then got up and kept running down the wrong path. Sobering. Are we on the path of Jesus? Do we know what it means to run from the finish line? The spiritual condition of Israel had not come about because of a lack of opportunity. It wasn't because they had had not heard the words of Jesus. They had God's special revelation. They had the law of Moses. They had the prophetic words pointing them to Jesus but they had remained stubborn. 
sobering. How did God feel about it? Did God laugh? Was he apathetic, complacent? How did God feel about that? Uh, our youngest daughter, when she was in high school, she was a runner, long-distance runner. And uh, one year she was competing at the BC Provincials, and uh, she ran a really good race. Uh, and uh, boy, Judy and I, we were just filled with joy when we saw her cross the finish line in second place, elated, and then crushed because my daughter had stopped a few meters before the finish line. The finish line had not been clearly marked for her, and so she came to the finish line, thought she had finished, and slowed right down. And as she stopped, other runners passed her. My heart sank. Her mother's heart sank. She had worked so hard. How does God the Father feel about the Jews not reaching the finish line? Look at verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long God stretches out his hands to an obstinate, stubborn, rebellious, <laughs> dismissive people, to people who contradict him, people who speak against him. He's like a parent with open arms longing for his people to come home. With God's heart in mind, Paul urges us to pray for all people. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God earnestly desires to see us get to the finish line. The path of saving ourselves, well, it's based on our own righteousness. Us striving, trying to measure up, trying to merit salvation. And very sadly, some who call themselves Christian stay on this path. Some people who call themselves Christian don't know what it means to have arrived at the finish line, to be fully loved and accepted by God, to be sons and daughters of the Father and to rest in that reality, that new identity. Instead, they continue to strive, continue to work, continue to try to measure up, to keep all the rules, what they consider to be rules, in order to be accepted by God and the people who call themselves Christian. So if you find yourself striving today, working, trying to gain God's acceptance, my friends, you haven't understood the gospel. You haven't understood the gospel because the work has been done by Jesus and we rest in the work that he has completed. It's finished. As followers of Jesus, we stand in his righteousness before the Father. By grace, we have been justified it's not unusual to hear someone who's approaching death to say, I hope I've done enough. That's not the gospel. That's working for salvation. 
Jesus completed the work. It's done. If we're trying to merit our salvation, we're doing something God has not asked us to do. What does it mean to reach the finish line? What does that look like? One thing about God's message to us is that it's very different from my daughter's story. In God's message to us, the finish line is very, very clear. Very clear. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Verse 9 of Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Jesus, is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The finish line is Jesus. And so when you call on the name of the Lord, you believe in your heart that you really need Him, that you can't do it on your own. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't do it with your own righteousness. You call out to Jesus to save you. You admit that you are missing the mark every day. And that you're in desperate need of God's mercy. That's where it starts. When you call on the name of Jesus, you believe that Jesus died on the cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and he took all of your inadequacy and your sin and your wrongdoing upon himself. And he paid the price that you and I could never pay. So if we're still trying to pay the price for our sin, we haven't understood the gospel. Sometimes people are following Jesus and they believe that they're still paying for their sins. That there's a load that they are to bear throughout the rest of their lives because of sins committed. Well, do we believe that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus or not? Are we still believing that we have to Make ourselves righteous and be righteous enough for God to accept us. Jesus is no longer in the tomb. God raised him from the dead. He's reigning over all things. He's called us to himself to follow him in this life and forevermore. You see, when you call on the name of Jesus, you say no to your independent path, whatever that might be. It may be you working for your own salvation. It may be you following your secular, secular path of atheism where you don't believe in anything. It may be uh, saying no to your attempts to make life work on your own. But whatever, whatever it is, you turn from it and you turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, you now are my way. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And I call out to you for mercy. Amen. When you call on the name of Jesus, you trust Jesus to make you alive by his spirit, to fill you with his spirit, so that you can now begin to run the beautiful race. Not because you're trying to measure up, but no, because of what Jesus has done. The motivation is completely different. You run the race with joy 
Because you are God's daughter, God's son. You've been saved. And so now you run with joy. No more working for God's acceptance. With a humble heart, if you've reached the finish line, with a humble heart, you've simply confessed Jesus to be your Savior, your Lord, your leader, and now you're following him in the joy of the Spirit. Now from the finish line, you are running the beautiful race that God has set before you. And it is a marvelous, beautiful race. There is no better race. We look at that Jamaican men's 4 by 100 relay race and we just stand in awe. The speed, the grace. The beautiful race of Jesus is a thousand times more beautiful than that one. And Jesus invites all of us to run it with the peace of God in our hearts, knowing that Jesus is going before us, with the gospel on our lips, sharing with, with everyone we meet because of the joy set before us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father... We confess that so often we slip back and we start working again to be accepted.